From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A decade ago, Samantha Allen was a Mormon missionary knocking on doors in a suit and tie. Now she's married to a woman and a GLAAD award-winning reporter who set out to tell the stories of LGBT people in red states. Her book, Real Queer America, follows her own story, and those are people like her who've turned their communities into places of acceptance and growth. Samantha Allen is among the writers at the upcoming AJC Decatur Book Festival. She'll be there on Saturday, August 31st. I caught up with her when the book was first published and asked her what the freedom of traveling meant to her. For me, roads are places of possibility. Cars, you know, historically, um, as a transgender woman, cars were places where I felt like I could be myself. You know, they were the first places I could wear the clothing I felt comfortable in, apart from prying eyes and um, and just kind of drive. Um, so cars have always been, to me, places of freedom uh, and escape. Well, this book was the product or the chronicle of a six-week cross-country road trip through LGBT communities in red states, not necessarily people who normally call attention to themselves. So how did you find the folks to talk to? You know, a lot of my interviewees I had kind of met through personal connections. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have lived a lot of my life and made a lot of friends in red states like Georgia, Tennessee, Indiana, Texas. So a lot of the process of writing the book was reaching out to those friends saying, hey, I'd like to come visit you. I'd like to meet other people in your LGBT communities in your local areas and and find out what you're up to, um, what kind of activism you have going on, what struggles you're dealing with, uh, what you're celebrating. And in addition to finding people that you knew, how did you decide how to plot this out? Was it personal relevance, political relevance, or maybe some kind of combination? There was a little bit of both. So a lot of the states that I chose to visit were places that I had a real deep personal connection to. Uh, Utah is where I went to college before I came out as transgender and transitioned. Georgia is where I went to graduate school and transitioned. I made lifelong friends in Tennessee. I met my wife in Indiana. Um, so a lot of a lot of the states were kind of personal choices. And then there were other places like Texas where I wanted to be because there were major political developments in LGBT. LGBT national news happening. And in that the year I wrote the book, 2017, Texas was considering a, a bathroom bill that would have uh, restricted restroom usage by uh, your original birth certificate gender marker. And so I wanted to be there in Texas that summer to, to see the protests against that bill. So how was that to face the logistics of traveling as a trans person through these kind of places that were considering that legislation, for example? Did that make things hard in communities that weren't accepting? You know, it's it's always made me a little nervous, especially um, after coming out to go on road trips. Um, you know, when I first came out and I was more kind of visibly transgender than I am after, you know, seven years on hormones, um, I was so scared and I would plot out, you know, oh, I'm going to use the restroom at this coffee shop at this point. I would literally like chart it out in advance. But at the same token, you know, I want to say that I found so much uh, kind of welcome and hospitality in red states as an openly queer person and um, kind of uh, you can kind of get in your own head about some of those safety concerns because I've felt welcome almost everywhere I've traveled. Tell us some of those stories that might have surprised or touched you where people showed you kindness and hospitality. 
oh gosh, um, so many. But the one that most immediately jumps to mind was uh, going back to Utah uh, to a town called Provo. It's about an hour south of Salt Lake City. I went to school there in uh, 2005. Um, I was still in the closet at the time. Um, it just wasn't imaginable to me that I could be open and out in the LGBT community in, in Provo at the time. It didn't seem to exist. And then when I went back, there was this amazing LGBT youth center called Encircle that was uh, literally across the street from the Mormon temple in Provo. Um, and I spent most of my days there um, hanging out with LGBT youth and, and their parents, many of whom were still devout Mormons, but wanted to figure out ways to support their kids. Um, and I met one kind of Mormon guy in his 40s. He pulled me aside. He found out I was going on this road trip and with this very serious look in his face was like, do you, do you need money? Like, I'm, I'm worried about you. Are you shoestringing this? And I told him, like, I'm all set. My, you know, I've got an advance from my publisher, that kind of thing. But he seemed, I don't know, ready to write me a check for the next week of the road trip <laughs> right then and there. I couldn't believe it. Well, you mentioned that these conversations about bathroom bills were going on at the time, and obviously you'd need to use bathrooms during a six-week road trip. But did you have any run-ins that concerned you? You know, uh, not really. I mean, I think it's ironic that, uh, you know, Texas legislators have, have tried so hard to keep transgender people from using the right restrooms. But in the process, they've probably caused a lot of transgender people to use the restrooms in the Texas state capitol because they keep coming back to protest the bill over and over again. And you, you have to go to the bathroom during the protest. So mm -hmm. these legislators are actually kind of inadvertently um, bringing all the transgender people in the state into their front yard. Well, you went, Samantha, deliberately to places that are often dismissed as the flyover states. So what did you find are some of the perceptions in red states and in the South that maybe you were even trying to change or challenge with this book? You know, I think... I think kind of the dominant narrative I wanted to shift was, I think in the, the 20th century, when we thought of LGBT people, we thought, oh, they, they get on a bus in Kansas and they show up at the Big Apple, you know, with a suitcase in their hand and they build a life in New York or, um, you know, or maybe they build a life in San Francisco. And when you look at what's happening demographically uh, in the country with uh, millennials who are more likely to identify as LGBT moving south and west and with more people in the South and West coming out as LGBT, um, the kind of queer center of gravity in the country is really shifting, I think, uh, in ways that have largely gone unnoticed. And and that's kind of a sentiment I encountered over and over again, was was not really feeling seen. You know, being in places like, um, like Atlanta that have a thriving LGBT community, um, but that still kind of flies under the radar of national consciousness. Well, of course, yeah, the urban environments, people who are different from one another are kind of squished together in apartment complexes or buildings. But we do see plenty of studies that show that interactions with people of different races, religions, sexual orientations, and so forth help erode the discrimination and, and prejudice. When you were in rural areas of red states, did you see maybe, you know, good, open people who just maybe hadn't had the chance to know or interact with people like you? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the most rural places I went to was called New Hope, Texas, um, it's, uh, outside of Dallas. And my friend uh, Jess Herbst is the mayor or was the mayor of that town at the time. And she was the first openly transgender mayor in Texas history. Um, and I had the privilege of going to this kind of uh, city hall town council meeting with her. And, you know, it was clear that the residents of this town hadn't really met a transgender person before Jess came out. They were still kind of figuring out, you know, how to, how to address her. I saw, you know, folks at the, the meeting, um, kind of slip up on her, her pronouns, um, you know, calling her she and her, uh, a time or two. Um, but they're, they were kind hearted. They were, um, trying to do better. And the fact that they had known Jess for, uh, years before she came out, um, kind of really, I think, changed uh, some some hearts and minds. And I, I think that's what we're seeing, even in more rural parts of the country, is, is LGBT people coming out and interacting with their family and friends and, and just kind of slowly washing away some of those past prejudices. My guest is the author and journalist Samantha Allen, among those at the AJC Decatur Book Festival. She'll be there on August 31st to talk about Real Queer America, LGBT stories from red states. Samantha, I think that is something that a lot of people are afraid of or of tripping up on, you know, using the right pronoun. How do you kind of help somebody that you're just meeting through that kind of conversation? I think it's important to just kind of take people where they are. I can draw from my own personal experience, and I wrote about this a bit in the book with with my own parents, you know. Um, when I came out to them, it took them by surprise. And, um, you know, of course, kind of in the early days of my transition, I, I was really insistent that they, they get on board quickly. I felt like I was making up for lost time. I was 24 years old. I had wanted to transition probably, you know, since I was a teenager, right? But kind of looking back now, I wish I had been a little more patient with them, kind of, I don't know, took them by the hand and walked them through it a little more slowly mm. and carefully than I did. How would you recommend somebody lead parents by the hand differently? I would recommend getting them online. You know, there's a lot of vocabulary that, that people have to learn. Transgender, cisgender, which means not transgender. Um, you know, what are pronouns? What different pronouns do people use? Um, and I just think it's important that to kind of exercise compassion on, on both sides, well, in addition to towns like New Hope, were there any other little communities that you found in smaller towns, Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, Utah, where you saw burgeoning movements or people, were they generally connected in the LGBT communities or living, as you said, you know, these little satellites that spread out in other places? I think one of the most surprising things to me is is just how ubiquitous these little satellite towns are. There's one everywhere. And, you know, and I had plotted out a lot of the trip in advance. But when I was going through Arkansas, people started telling me about this town in northwest Arkansas called Eureka Springs that I had never heard about before. And they were just like, you have to go, you have to go. Um, so we drove kind of an hour and a half 
north of Fayetteville through these kind of beautiful forests. It's in the middle of the Ozark Mountains. And then suddenly you're in this charming little town full of bed and breakfasts and underground springs. And, you know, you walk in any gift shop and it's owned by some gay male couple that also runs a bed and breakfast in town. And it's just this magical little place in the middle of Arkansas um, that, you know, I think most people probably don't even know exists. And there's probably places like that in every state that I've never heard of before, but would love to visit. Were any of the people who you spoke to in these towns facing any, let's say, outright intolerance or even hostility? Or or did they talk to you about inroads that they had made? And, and how was that done? The most impressive thing to me as an LGBT journalist is getting the opportunity to kind of go on the ground and talk with folks about how change is kind of actually happening. Because from a national media perspective, often the stories we hear are just, oh, this anti-LGBT law got passed or this anti-LGBT law got stopped. And we're not really seeing what's happening on the ground. And, and what's happening in these red states is really just kind of the simple power of conversation, uh, friends and family members talking to each other. I mean, one of the most moving moments of the trip for me was um, being with a Mormon uh, mom in Utah whose son had just come out as transgender, I think like two weeks before we interviewed them. And it was just incredible to see them talking through this. And, you know, here, here was someone who 10 years ago might not have understood LGBT issues or, or been as sympathetic to them as she was today. And it had just happened from talking to her son, asking questions, trying to figure out how he could be happy. We're going to head into a break and come back with Samantha Allen. We're talking about her road trip through red states as an LGBT woman. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with On Second Thought from GPB and Samantha Allen. She's one of the writers who will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. Samantha is a reporter who set out to tell the stories of LGBT people in red states. Her new book is called Real Queer America, and it follows her own story and those of people who've worked to turn their communities into places of acceptance and growth. When we spoke earlier this year, I asked her when she started writing the book. Uh, shortly after the election. Okay, so um, the election of 2016 then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did your focus change over the course of the Trump presidency? Uh, you know, um, I think the Trump presidency was a, a real wake-up call for folks. Um, I think it was more of a wake-up call for folks living in blue states, coastal states, than it was for some of the people that I interviewed and profiled in the book. You know, um, a lot of people that I met in red states, LGBT activists, organizers, and just everyday LGBT folks, they weren't necessarily surprised um, that that Trump won. I feel like they had more of a read on on um, where his support came from and and what we're up against. Uh, uh, you know, progressive-minded folks in the country are up against. Um, and 
And so it was kind of interesting to go um, kind of from, you know, my day job as a national reporter back into these communities that had sort of seen the outcome of the election coming, I feel like, more than the establishment press did. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, obviously, that is something there was much hand wringing after the election from the media, the national media saying, like, how did we miss this? But you were getting a very close up view. No surprise to you. Yeah, you know, I mean, part, one of the things that I think has really been interesting is the how did we miss this question is often phrased as, I don't know, how did we miss the story of the Trump supporter in the red state? Mm. Uh, but part of what I wanted to write about and address in the book is, is I think we're also missing the the LGBT, uh, you know, women's rights supporters in red states. I feel like we're not hearing enough stories about uh, progressive people in red states. Um, mm. I feel like we're just missing a lot. Uh, and I want it to contribute to the conversation. Um, you shouldn't just be asking yourself, how did Trump happen and how did we miss it? You should be asking yourself, who are the people living in these places that helped elect Trump who, who didn't want it to happen, who fought against it and who under his presidency are, are fighting to make their states more welcoming to LGBT people, people of color, immigrants, mm. that kind of thing. Well, and you write in the book about places that have been accepting for a long time, those meccas, uh, in addition to the small communities like Atlanta, still the best place to be queer or bi or trans in the country, you write. Why is that? The queer community in Atlanta is just, it's so vibrant. It's so warm. I love Atlanta Pride. When I lived there, I marched in Atlanta Pride. I walked around and, I don't know, filled canvas bags full of swag from all the booths and that kind of thing. Um, Atlanta's just an amazing, beautiful, diverse city. It was a privilege to live there for as long as I did. And, and part of what I feel like gives the community that sense of cohesiveness. You know, it's not absolutely perfect. No community ever is. But uh, what a lot of folks uh, say to me is in Atlanta, everybody in the LGBT community kind of had to come up together. The gay folks, the bi folks, the trans folks, everybody had to kind of fight at the same time. Uh, you compare that with a state like, say, Massachusetts, where you have kind of same-sex marriage rights get way out in front of trans issues. Uh, and it leads, I think, to a little more disconnectedness in the community. Mm. Uh, in Atlanta, I just kind of feel, I don't know, I you hang out with everyone. Um, everyone hangs out together. Atlanta, as you mentioned, was a place where you had your first conversations about being trans and transitioned. What were those conversations like back in 2012? And what was the context? Oh my gosh. So I was in graduate school at Emory University in the humanities. Like theoretically, I shouldn't have been all that afraid. But even in, even in 2012, even after a few years of living in Atlanta, I still had a lot of preconceptions about Georgia, about the South. I just assumed that it wouldn't be a very welcoming place to come out. Um, and I, I, I was, worried, frankly, about living in the South and, and coming out and being trans. And uh, a lot of those fears just kind of evaporated. I came out to my mentor at Emory University, Michael Shutt, who does a lot of work with Georgia Equality. Um, he was a, a, a 
the head of the Office of LGBT Life at Emory University at the time. And he, he was just like, oh, great. Um, we have, you know, a world-renowned hormone expert, an endocrinologist in the health center. We've got a, you know, a counselor at the Emory Counseling Center who specializes in these issues. And also our health insurance covers all of it and uh, most of the cost of surgery. So you're all set. And I I don't know. I couldn't believe it. Um, in transitioning at Emory in Atlanta and Georgia, it, it couldn't have been a smoother experience. And I, I don't know. I had a lot of kind of um, preconceived notions that were just kind of burst overnight. You mean about the South? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, my my uh, counselor at the Emory uh, Student Health Center is this uh, lovely queer woman who kind of motorcycle rides with a lot of queer women through the South. Uh, you know, she kind of helped me calm down about coming out in Georgia. And I, I just realized how many people there were in Georgia who really cared about these issues and in a, in a really earnest way, because they could see the stakes of it on the ground. You can, you can see why it matters so much. Are there people that you encountered and they were not in as tolerant communities as those that you're describing and, and wonder why they might be staying in a place that was harmful for them or felt dangerous or perilous? Yeah. You know, I think, the place where I encountered that the most was um, the Rio Grande Valley in, uh, you know, places like McAllen, Texas, um, recently uh, popularized because uh, uh, Trump went down there to talk about the border wall and his national emergency and that kind of thing. But that's a sidebar. Um, when I went to the Rio Grande Valley, I met a lot of LGBT people there who who said that they were there because they couldn't leave. Um, it's one of the most impoverished areas of the country. Something like one in three people there live in poverty. And uh, for undocumented folks in that part of the country, you know, you have this kind of almost militarized border to the south. And then you have interior border checkpoints um, 100 miles north, which make it, you know, hard to get up to Austin or up um uh, Dallas or that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, a lot of places that I went to that were more tolerant, uh, people were like, I like it here. I want to stay here. I want to help change things here. I met people in the Rio Grande Valley who said, I'm, I'm here because I can't go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. But even then, they were starting to say, well, I'm stuck here. I might as well make it more inclusive and welcoming. I, um, you know, I might as well make this a place that LGBT people can call home. And I met some of the most amazing young Mexican-American folks there who were, who were just like doing incredible work uh, to reshape the Rio Grande. So they felt like they had to be responsible in some way for for opening up minds or showing that, you know, we're here, to use the old statement? Yeah, I mean, they kind of felt like their backs were against the wall. I met one, um, one non-binary person there uh, who uses they and them as a, a pronoun. Um, and they, they told me, um, we're, we're like cactuses down here. We have to grow in the hard places. Um, and you know, this was a person who's, who's gets shouted at on the street when, when they're out in public or, um, you know, experiences some of the kind of anti-LGBT sentiment that can crop up down there. Um, 
despite it, you know, being an area that votes blue on, on kind of other social issues. And, and they just felt, I don't know, this remarkable resilience in the face of that, that sentiment. Samantha Allen will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on August 31st to talk about real queer America, LGBT stories from red states. It strikes me that that is kind of the trajectory of activism in some way, right? You know, when you are the first in a place, you either choose to be, you know, kind of disappear and assimilate as best one can if you are an other, so to speak, or become an activist. And and it's it's a kind of hallmark of the first wave of activism. And then the second wave is a little less active. And then the third or fourth, you know, might be a little more comfortable in their spot, not wanting to necessarily make waves. Do you see that as a sign on some level of success? Um, I I kind of worry about complacency uh, personally. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why I found writing this book so energizing is because I was largely visiting places that were in that kind of like first or second wave of LGBT activism, um, you know, and being someone who also spends a fair amount of time in kind of more liberal coastal states, I, I worry a bit about people, I don't know, letting their guard down because, you know, even in places like New York, New York didn't get transgender non-discrimination protections into its state law um, until this year, 2019. Uh, a lot of people probably assumed it had happened already. Um, so when when people let their guards down, we don't see progress as quickly as it should happen. And then we can also see kind of surprising rollbacks like uh, this happened over a decade ago, but it's, it's one of the most kind of visceral ones. Uh, Proposition 8 in California when um, same-sex marriage was, was suddenly made illegal. Uh, it took a lot of folks by surprise. They thought, how could this happen? It's California. Um, But if you get too complacent, if you don't show up to the polls, if you don't kind of mobilize or organize, things can take you by surprise. Mm. Well, after all of your motion around the country, East Tennessee eventually felt like home to you. Why, Why was that a place that felt right? I first went to East Tennessee for a fan convention, actually, like a comic book convention. Um, It was this little town in East Tennessee, about an hour west of Asheville, called Johnson City. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of it before, and I just met the most amazing people there. Um, A lot of uh, kind of like bisexual and queer people. And um, I met my best friends, uh, Jen and Justin there, kind of instantly fell in love with them and their their dogs, uh, Red and Doc and their tortoise, Zelda. It's just kind of this beautiful tucked away little town with a kind of Al Capone-esque downtown area, <laughs> very like 1920s feeling railroad running through the town. It's it's just a, a gem. And I think for me, it was it was sort of, um, I, I don't know, emblematic of, of what a lot of small town America can be like. It's out there waiting for you. And there are so many places that you've, you've never heard of, but you could, I, I don't know, pull out any state map and find a little place and look it up online and be surprised by what you find there. Well, you, like many people who you met, did maybe not necessarily got on the bus in Kansas City and lit out for the big city, but did leave things behind and and maybe had to break ties. 
in order to find their communities of choice and their new places to live. What does that do to the whole notion of home and place? You know, that one's identity is often associated with a home. So what does it offer to make a new identity in a new place? I I think one of the biggest ideas I explored in the book and part of what you're getting at is like uh, home is something you carry with us and people have really complex relationships to their own personal notions of home. It's always been a challenging question for me. Um, I've lived in uh, California, New Jersey, Utah, Montana. Indiana for a summer, Atlanta, South Florida, Washington State. Uh, I've lived all over and never really stayed anywhere super long since turning 18. Um, and so for me, it's hard for me to even answer the question of where where is home. Um, I've always kind of coveted a more kind of permanent sense of home. It's one of the joys of writing the book was I got to meet people who had a real sense of of attachment to one place. But you're right, I did I did meet people who had to kind of leave those attachments behind. I think one of the most um heartbreaking examples of that is uh Jackson, Mississippi. Um uh it's a city that a lot of young uh young folks leave. Um and that, you know, hurts the economy of Jackson, Mississippi. It hurts the state politics of Mississippi, if you care about LGBT rights. Um, and I, you know, I have friends, I have a friend, a good friend in Atlanta, Kaylee, um, mentioned in the book, who, who grew up in Mississippi, but had to leave it behind for work opportunity. Um, but she feels just so shaped by this place. Um, you know, I met her in Atlanta and she, she wouldn't shut up about Jackson, Mississippi, (laughs) frankly. She just talked about it all the time to the point where I was like, I have to go to this place now. You, you talk, you talk about it every time we hang out. Um, and I, I went there and, and I just saw what she loved about what she loved about her home. And I saw how it had, had shaped her. Um, my Kaylee is a very, um, outspoken ally to the transgender community. And I saw how being in a place like Mississippi, where you have to be outspoken and brave in order to kind of get by, I saw how it, it, her home had made her who she was. Um, and I think no matter where your home is, or if you have a fractured sense of home, you're always shaped by the places you've been. Mm. Samantha, I was joking a little bit about the idea of using this as a green book for LGBT people, but do you think that people will use it as a guide? Gosh, I hope that everyone who reads it goes to Johnson City. <laughs> I, I am. You're going to welcome them all? <laughs> yeah. I'm not a Mormon missionary anymore. I will be an evangelist for Johnson City, Tennessee. It's amazing. Samantha Allen, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Samantha Allen, who turned a road trip into a book with Real Queer America, LGBT stories from red states. I spoke to her when the book first came out, and you can catch her at the AJC Decatur Book Festival this Labor Day weekend. Stay with us. There's more on Second Thought coming up after a short break. 